นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะบุตรทั้งธรรมังสังฆนามสามเ
Phil, it's a great privilege to have the chance to, to, though I find it difficult, but the privilege to have the chance to be in this position of, of uh, talking about the Buddhist teachings, translating them through uh, my own experience, our own experience, making some effort to share them, because uh, I feel a tremendous uh, gratitude uh, to the efforts of, uh, of the Buddha or whatever it was that allowed these teachings to come to us. And I feel a lot of uh, gratitude at uh, what I feel has been an amazingly sincere effort on uh, everyone's part to to use this time well. The, the discussions have been very revealing and very precious uh, to us. It's been wonderful hearing people's honest sharings. It's been equally wonderful that there can be differences of opinion, that the space of our meditation is allowing us to be able to hear the note, hear the sounds, hear the views and opinions of each other, some which we resonate more with, some which we don't resonate so much with, but to, to be interested in that, willing to sort of create an, an atmosphere where we can hear each other, understand each other, understand ourselves in terms of how we react to each other. The sounds coming out of the our efforts to merge in in and uh, praise that which is worthy of praise, to praise the refuge, sending forth our aspiration, our yearning, our frustration. Those sounds have been very, very beautiful, very touching. And yet also we, we reflect that this, this time together is, is formed, it's, it's conditioned, it has is, it is come into creation. And that which comes together also comes apart. That's the law. I do feel a tinge of sadness because I've felt been very nice to to meet like this, because uh, this sense of family, at least that I feel, is is not that often felt in life. On the other hand, we can we can accept this is the law and wonder what what will go forth from this as we as we disperse, going each in our own way. What what can we take with us? What 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 goes on? I'd like to think of the image of a flower that uh, after it flowers, then goes to seed, and then the wind blows, and then the seeds are scattered. And those seeds uh, uh, bring forth other flowers. 
I'd like to think that the seeds of our of our efforts, our efforts at bringing into consciousness and cultivating the, uh, the refuge, not as just a theory, but as a, as a reality, as something we can really feel, that we can learn little by little to really rest in, to trust in, and to be carried by. It's really refuge in Buddha. A place that we can use. A place that is not a question of becoming a Buddha. We actually can work from, use in our moments of mindfulness this, this capacity to see clearly, to be awake, to respond from a point of awakening, to respond with metta, kindness, to respond with compassion, to respond with joy, to respond with serenity. The seeds of our are really learning to to make a reality, this sense of refuge, learning how to stand in truth, learning how to feel that, my goodness, we're swimming in truth. I mean, it's an eight-lane highway. We can't fall off it. I mean, and yet sometimes we, we get the idea it's out there somewhere. But you know, beginning to get the feeling that even when everything is wrong, we're on the highway. We're still, we're still on the road. And that even all that's wrong and all the convictions that is wrong and the real incredible conviction that we have screwed up is dumber. I mean, we can actually still take our refuge like a rock on, on, on remembering, let's see the truth of this, I screwed up, really. And find that we can, we can still rest there, we can still be carried by a sense of knowing how it is. Feeling the waves, maybe the unpleasant waves of the echoes of having screwed up. Knowing the path is here and now. Really making a reality, this, this sense of Sangha. Or at least beginning to, to, to see the views and the, and the, you know, we think we don't have any faith. We got lots of faith. We just got faith in the wrong things. <laughs> I mean, we have convictions. I am no good. We have convictions. I don't deserve it. We have convictions that, in my views and my opinions, we have we have cast iron faith. Our problem is we haven't doubted enough. We haven't actually begun to call into question some of our convictions. To look at the, those views and opinions having the faith to doubt, having the faith to allow, we've been talking about this, to allow into consciousness the painful, the, the doubt, to allow into consciousness that which we're so desperately certain about. This view and that opinion. And, and to begin to allow into consciousness this, this view that we're a victim somehow. And, and to begin to recognize we do have a choice in terms of how we relate, what our attitude is to this experience of being alive. In that choice, that 
that approach is, is, is what Sangha is all about, this, this practice of, of, you know, that we can make that effort to practice that which is good, straight, wise. And that, that very shift in attitude can be the difference between heaven and hell. And I like to think that the seeds, they're just the seeds of this this retreat is, is blossoming now and it will go to seed tomorrow. As we go our own ways, I really like to think these, these seeds of this sincere effort that we've put in to make these refuges real can, can, can be nourished and really grow in our lives, continue to bring forth that which is beautiful, clear, But these particular circumstances uh, will cease. I mean, for some of us, I mean, we can we can go on as some live here for longer. But the particular conditions, even Harry Houdini, the great magician, <laughs> you can't you can't keep the conditions the same all the time. And so then, then we can, you know, rightfully bring forth the question, well, what, what can, how do we apply this to, to our, to our life, our ordinary lives? I think one thing that comes to mind when I when I ask that question to my heart is is this real attitude of patience. We've we've said this before, but it's, I feel it's very important. Many of you know this story, but on the on the full moon of uh, February, early on in the Buddha's lifetime, uh, twelve hundred and fifty of his enlightened disciples showed up without announcement, without invitations. They all sort of had the same thought at the same time to go and visit where the Buddha was. And they showed up at this uh, meeting. And, uh, which was nice. And, and so then the Buddha gave a talk. And you'd think, all right, well, there'd be certain talks for, uh, the beginner's class and other talks for intermediate, but you know when you got an advanced class of uh, 1,250 awakened beings, you figure it's going to be some pretty high-powered stuff. And he gave the teaching called the Awada Padimoka, which was uh, it's been recited for a long time used to know it all by memory, but I don't know. It's not very long. But the first, a couple of the stanzas still stick in my mind. And, 
in, in, in the first line is very significant to me. Kanti paramang tapo titika nibbanang paramang wadanti buddha. Patience. The word kanti, patience, is the ultimate practice for burning up and overcoming that which is unwholesome, unskillful. The word is titika, it's sort of, I mean, sometimes it's translated as evil, that's a bit heavy, but you know, for, for really overcoming that which is, really obstructs us. And nibbana is the highest state, highest peace. But this, this patience, you know, once, once we get a, a taste, once we get a feeling, once we have an insight, sometimes we, we, we forget, we say, yeah, and then, and then our old friend comes back again. The doubt, or the depression, or the self-disparagement, or the anger, and we totally lose it. And we think we've got our refuges, and we feel like jumping off the bridge. And, and you think, God, what happened? It's not working. This, this idea that some some tendencies, some states just keep returning. They they return till we really have penetrated them, really have worn them out, really seen clearly, really learned the lesson. Rather than all right, I've learned my lesson. Bye. Remember in, in uh, Thailand, I think it was after my first bout in the hospital before the typhoid really got me. My s- stomach was like this huge balloon, and yet my body was like a skeleton because I'd lost a lot of weight. It wasn't well. And I mean, I got depressed, very depressed. I didn't know I was going to get typhoid soon, but I mean, I was. <laughs> I was heavy, and I was convinced that I would never smile again. I'm, th- I'm not joking. I felt that I was really convinced, and went on and on. I thought I got to talk to Ajahn Chah about this because this was. I mean, just everything seemed so dark, and then you know, just looking up the line, one bald head after another. <laughs> <laughs> Going to big meetings, hundreds of bald heads, <laughs> robes bow, sticky rice, eating, and then feeling like you've just eaten a ball of fire, your stomach puffed out. Just everything seems so hopeless. So I went to see Ajahn Chah, and I, my tie wasn't very good, so I had to... Uh, uh, a friend, good friend monk, helped translate it. So as I was talking to Ajahn Chah, he would whisper in my ear, so I had this stereo effect. And I told uh, Ajahn Chah, he was nice. He saw me when the other monks went to chanting, so it was really nice sitting in his hut. Everyone else was at chanting, so in the distance you could hear this. Uh, and the, the Thai chanting is very melodic. 
that they do it in Pali and then they do it in Thai, so in the distance you go, Tiyoso Bhagavara Hangsama Sambuto Prabhumi Papakjanan Prahundai. And you get this kind of nice thing, but it was really nice for not to be in the group and to be alone with Ajahn Chah. He was sitting in his wicker chair. His knee wasn't so great. So he was sitting in the wicker chair and I was sitting on the floor. And uh, monk was whispering in my ear what he was saying. I said, Ajahn Chah, I'm, I'm never going to smile again. He said, it's just really heavy. <laughs> and uh, he, he looked at me, asked me a few questions. And then he, he, uh, he started to tell me this story. He said, well, there was a mama chipmunk. There was a baby chipmunk. Chipmunk's like a squirrel. Yes, but it's, it's in Thailand, there's the ones that can kind of fly, that can leap. And this mama chipmunk could run up a tree and go up a limb and then leap through the air and hold on to another limb and then run up and then leap, do all these incredible things. The baby chipmunk saw the mama chipmunk and the baby chipmunk said, right, went up there leaped and landed on the ground with a thud and in Thai uh, Ajahn Chah's head was kind of like this and he went dok and dok means <laughs> dok is the word for when you fall and so his head is kind of like this big head and my head's right below and he was going dok and you could almost feel his eyes kind of going in a circle <laughs> and he said but that chipmunk went to kindergarten he went to kindergarten in first grade, in second grade, in third grade, in fourth grade, in fifth grade, in sixth grade. Graduated from elementary school. He's he raced up the tree, leaped, caught a branch, perfect, then leaped again and doak. <laughs> and Ajahn Chah's head's kind of rolling around like that. And then this baby chipmunk said, I'm going to high school. <laughs> and he went to 7th grade and 8th grade and 9th grade and 10th grade and 11th grade and 12th grade. And he's got a high school diploma. And he raced up the tree and he jumped off this branch and jumped off that branch. And you know what happened, kind of dope. <laughs> and uh, by this time, I was, I was, I had to roll around on the floor of his hut because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I was just, I was screaming with, with laughter and he's just going, so he had this chipmunk go to college and then get a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and meanwhile, I'm killing myself laughing. And then uh, he, um, Ajahn Chah looks at me and then he says, and one day, that chipmunk, went up the tree and it jumped on this branch and it jumped on that branch and it jumped up here and it flipped over there and it could do everything that its mother could do. I thought, I really felt, I thought, wow, what a, really felt happy. And I think he was uh, <laughs> giving a little encouragement. <laughs> I'm still uh, leaping off branches and catching a few and missing a few. 
but that feeling of falling and and uh, learning actually to be grateful that one can can get up again one can find that path and one can keep studying keep practicing there's something very very beautiful about that and the and the reassurance from someone, I, I feel in Ajahn Chah's eyes, you see someone who has, who's fallen so many times and who really knows what it means to suffer and who really knows what it means to really be willing to go right through that and who is a very joyful being. And I really felt that encouragement just to keep, keep going and just trust that our, our true nature is to be like our mother. This the mother, the mother, Prajnaparamita, sometimes our mother is called, this wisdom is our mother. This wisdom gives birth, this true nature, this jewel at the heart of the lotus, this Buddha nature. It's our true, true source. And that, that's why he could tell me that I was going to do it eventually. Because it's our true nature to see clearly. We patiently can keep learning from the falls. I understood that story, and that was quite good. Then he told me another story that I couldn't quite understand. He says, so did you used to wrestle, he said? said, yeah, yeah. He said, "Uh, why would you do that? I tried to explain him how you wrestle people, and if you get the guy's shoulders on the mat, you win, and slap the mat, and hold your hand up. (laughs) Better than somebody else and he and then he told me this other story he said well that's like that's like this donkey (laughs) there was a donkey and this donkey listened to all the crickets singing at night in Thailand I mean they really do it he was thinking, God, I want to do that. I want to be a singer like that. This, this donkey was very good-hearted donkey, quite diligent. <laughs> and it noticed that the, the crickets, they ate dewdrops. And so this donkey, being a clever donkey, <laughs> went around and started licking dewdrops around licking all the dewdrops. And then it opened up his mouth and was ready for the music to come out. <laughs> Hee-haw! <laughs> and I thought, what did he tell me that story for? <laughs> I got the one about the chipmunk, but... The donkey and the crickets? (laughs) And I I think the two stories, I still digest things, but I think the two stories are interesting. The the first story, we we are inspired by some outsider sometimes. Our friends, those we respect, our teachers, the Buddha, the saints, the sages, and we, we... 
we get inspired and we practice and he was encouraging me to, you know, there is accomplishment, there is skill. But it's really interesting that this other story is something about always competing, always comparing yourself to someone else, thinking you should be like that or you should be like that. I think there's something in there about this this little, little donkey <laughs> learning to be able to be himself <laughs> and appreciate that. Appreciate that. Because this world would not be the same without donkeys. <laughs> and, uh, and the donkey's note is perfect. Perfect for the donkey. <laughs> And I think there's something about also learning how to to listen inwardly. And in some sense, yes, we can be inspired sometimes by those outside ourselves, but if we're always just trying to be somebody else, there's going to be suffering when we open our mouth up and we keep hearing maybe something different. And so, uh, uh, along with patience, uh, I think an, another thing I'd like to encourage is something we can bring with us into into ordinary life. Is this is this making contact with ourselves, ma- making contact with where we are, what we are. I, I call it putting the clutch in. It's when the clutch is not in, that motor's going and that motor's connected to the car, and I mean you're still moving. You're still going all over the place. But sometimes it's very useful to have a clutch. I'm learning because we we've got a just this year got our driver's licenses. After fifteen years in the monastery, my license fell off the computer in America, so I had to <laughs> had to go and get the test and pass the test over here got introduced to the clutch again. and just To be able to put the clutch in, the engine still races, whatever it's doing, but it's not bothering anybody. And it's so useful to be able to Sometimes not have to sort it all out, not have to figure it out, not have to rearrange the furniture, not have to... But to be able to put in the clutch means in a moment to be able to let go of trying to do anything except totally be with just how it is. And yet all the mind keeps spinning and everything like that, and yet One's not grabbing any part of it. One's disengaging. One's not pushing it away. One's not grabbing it. Just letting it be. You might still hear all the voices, you should do this, should do that, this, that. Just letting it be. Being that which is just listening. Just open. It's 
see that that, that takes us to, to something at the depth of our nature. Finding our balance again. Finding that which is, is true for us again. And then, and then in, in that place of equality, in that place of not picking, choosing, judging, preferring, I think there's a way then of, of looking freshly. And to me, this is the middle. This is the middle, the middle way. It's not looking and seeing what everyone else is doing. All oh, the crickets are singing, that's what I should be doing. The middle way is not necessarily, well, everybody else is cheating on the income tax. The middle way is, well, that's the, I won't do the extreme as much as that person, but as little as that person, but I'll just be in the middle. Or you could say, Sam, Sam says he has five girlfriends, and Joe says he has two girlfriends, so let's see, five minus two is three, so I could have uh, one, uh, three and a half, be the middle. <laughs> Realizing middle is, is being able to put the clutch in and stop and just find our heart again. The middle is about using our heart, coming back to what we can feel, what we can know, what we can see. And the middle is in terms of what it's not in terms of what everybody else says. Yes, we should be open and hear what everybody else says, but most important things is this sense of feeling. What what is right? What is the extreme of just greed? What is the extreme of repression and aversion? What is, what is right? Being, being willing to ask this, this question. Being willing to come back to our own capacity to taste life, to taste the moment. And then to be able to be guided by that, like uh, Michaela was talking so beautifully about at our discussion time, the sense of being guided by the heart. Yet we can't be guided by the heart Unless we stop to orient ourselves, unless our little donkey friend uh, listens. And when we listen, we notice, oh, I have a donkey's body. <laughs> or I have this body. I have this feeling. I have this circumstance. And that it's not always so clear what, what we should... I mean, our intellectual mind would like to figure it all out, but I mean, life is too complicated to figure it all out. Like sometimes we think, oh God, where should we live? And we don't have a home, and then what should we do? And how are we going to survive? And uh, should it be in America, or should it be in California, or should it be in Canada, or, or North Carolina, or, or Ireland, or... Uh, uh, and all of us face sometimes these situations where we, we can see the mind wanting to have certainty. Should I get married or not get married? Or, 
or break up or come back together or go into the monastery or come out of the monastery. Or... <laughs> and yet, I think sometimes we forget that, that, that things have to cook. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like if, if someone's having a baby, you don't expect to get it out of there too quick and find out what it all is and everything like that. I mean, you just, you know, it's cooking. <laughs> Give it time. I mean, there's gestation, period, everything, you know, and all, 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 all things are coming into, into place and it kind of takes time. Or like, if, if someone's cooking and, and there's something in the oven, you know, what is it? How's it doing? Keep opening the oven up. I mean, that's all right, but sometimes it just takes time to really cook. One's always opening the oven up, it's just it's not going to cook. And, and sometimes not knowing is part of the cooking. I mean, sometimes the answer hasn't cooked. And, and we, need, we need to allow ourselves that period of time to let the elements come together. There isn't certainty because it's not time yet for it. It's not time yet for the baby to come. It's not time yet for the project to start or for the move to happen. I mean, and this is another part of, of patience and another part of also tuning into our heart and allowing things to take their own time. This takes, this takes faith. Those moments of when there's worry and anxiety, sometimes putting in the clutch, getting it in perspective, allowing ourselves to rest with that worry, rest with that anxiety, find our refuge again, and just be patient. Give things time. And obviously I would encourage, I mean, we both would encourage in our lay life to find times of stillness, to make time for worship or devotion or, or periods of sustaining this, this feeling for refuge that we have. We'd encourage that. Encourage good friendship. Encourage uh, seeking out the, people that we can talk Dhamma with, that we can talk about how life is with. It's one of the nice things about our conversations together. We learn from each other. I suppose the last, last thing I'll say is, uh, I suppose, a, a general attitude of uh, generosity is very, very useful in life, too. So much of our suffering comes from this sense of encapsulation, this whole sense of me as an entity that's kind of cut off somehow, me and life. 
And and yet nature doesn't really work that way, as I can see it. I mean, if your right hand is, is selfish so that it won't give up the food because it wants it, you know, you say, come on, come on, put it in my mouth. And then if the mouth is selfish, what's going to happen? I mean, you know, it shares it with the stomach and the stomach shares it with the whole body and the whole body works together. It wouldn't make sense if right hand was in the war with the left hand or the liver was in the war with the kidneys. And we they, we all circu- they circulate and help each other. Look at the sun. It's, it's just being itself, but I mean, look what's happening in nature, that... 93 million miles away and the kind of power that's coming out of that sun is it's just being itself. The kind of sharing, natural sharing that we notice when we look at nature. We notice when we look at flowers, they share their scent or their beauty. And because this kind of diluted sometimes sense of separateness, sometimes little gestures of, of, of generosity help us get that in perspective and help us stay naturally connected to life. And that can really, really be a wonderful support for our, for our spiritual practice. Just little gestures. The image that always comes to mind is a, is a gesture which some of you have heard before, but I'll say it again, is the image of my nephew when he's about eight or nine or something like that. He, he came with a gift for me. And uh, as he was walking toward me, he was just a little guy. The joy was leaking out of a corner of his mouth. And, and it just, as he got closer, it was just like this. And the bomb was going to go off, and this kind of joy bomb exploded. As he handed me this, this little piece of paper, in, written in pencil, with a scraggly handwriting of a nine-year-old, eight- or nine-year-old, it just said, Dear Kitty Sorrow, love Jason. That's all it was, a piece of paper. And yet the joy that came to that child from that, and then the joy that swept over me, just receiving that. And that, that, that is just such an archetypal symbol for me of life, of, of the beauty of just little gestures, gestures of, of giving. Or I have a memory of a person who came to the monastery, had a lot of problems, he'd been in prison for rape and this and that, and he's really a bit messed up and very suicidal. And one day he was uh, going out to kind of kill himself, and somehow I sort of found out and had to go look for him in the forest and found him. He had this rope and everything, and I don't know what he was going to do, but I mean, I guess he was going to try. And uh, I wasn't very well in those days, and you know, so I was trying to talk to him, and he was uh, quite resistant to it. But then suddenly he noticed, because I'd come out, because it was a bit of an emergency, so I'd come out and chase him down, and he saw me shivering, because it was winter. And, And just him noticing me shiver, and the thought occurred to him, oh, would you like my coat? Snapped him out of it. It was incredible. Just just this kind of black hole of obsession with his problems. And just somehow noticing, 
I guess that I'd made the effort to come out or that I was shivering, that, that slight little gesture of a gift of attention even. And, and, and that without thinking, to offer the coat, flip that whole thing around very powerfully. And then, uh, so he, um, you know, so that he was all right after that. So I, I hugged him and reassured him. And wow, and I mean, talk about a body with tension in it. It's like hugging a porcupine or something like that. <laughs> but it was interesting, though, that how the, the path out, I'm sure the path out for that person is just, again, just simple gestures of giving. What difference that can make. And we should not underestimate the the gestures, the good gestures that we do. I mean, don't underestimate. And this, remember this stanza I talked about patience being the highest practice. Well, the last stanza of that Awadapati Moka, I don't remember the middle of it, but the last three lines are something like, to refrain from evil, to, to lift up, to do that which is good, and to purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Not just one Buddha, you see. We're going way back. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. This incredible simplification of refrain from that which is really harmful. Lifting up, doing that which is good, and purify the heart, which is what we've been doing. You know, not to, not to, to dismiss the power of one little act. Just one little thing that you don't do, it might harm. Not to dismiss that. Or one little thing that you do do. I don't know how tired you are. I hesitate. I, can I tell you a story about some good, one good thing that I did? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> are you too tired? No. Okay. Okay, here's a good deed. In my senior year at high school, so I was 18 years old, 126 pounds. At that time, I was four, already four-time Mid-South champion in wrestling, and I'd won the nationals my junior year. So my senior year, I was coming back with this national prep invitational for high schools in used to be held in Pennsylvania, Lehigh. So... Uh, now I went to, remember, I went to an all-white military prep school. And because uh, in those days, I mean, still to some extent, there's some racial problems in the South. And um, we were then going to wrestle in a dual meet, uh, a school across town called, uh, in, in, in Southern talk, they say Notre Dame. It was... Uh, no, no, I guess you pronounce I won't try to pronounce it properly. Anyway, and that school was integrated, so they had some black and white students. And so I was wrestling the captain of their team, who was a black boy, but his name was Jerome White. <laughs> now, at that time, I had a reputation because I had already won all these tournaments and I'd gotten to Chattanooga, which is really big, but Chattanooga Wrestler of the Year and everything like that, so I had a reputation. He sent a message from across town and it 
wasn't very nice English. I can't, I can't, I'm too ashamed to sort of say it as it was, because it, but, but basically he said he was going to really. <laughs> well, I suppose I can say it afterwards. I'm, I'm very um, prudish, I guess. He says, he, I got this message, I'm going to kick your butt across town, so in front of all these people. And, you know, a lot of people come to these matches, they're full. So, you know, I don't know, you have a couple thousand people, I guess, in the gym. So the little white start and 100-pound uh, class and then 198-pound class and 105-pound class, 118 and 126. So I was about the fourth match. So when I came out there, it was my turn. And uh, uh, we go out there. The referee says, all right, I want a clean match. And then he blows a whistle. Tweet. And then we start. And then he, we started on this match. And the first thing he did is come up and hit me on the head. And you're not... In real wrestling, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to hit someone. So I thought, God, what's he doing? And the referee came in and gave him a warning. And then, um, then we started again. And then he leaped for me. Uh, but he made a big mistake. He let his elbow come out a little bit. When you go in for someone to take them down, it's not a good idea to leave your elbow out. Because when he left his elbow out, too bad I can't show you, but when you leave your elbow out <laughs> and someone comes in, you can get your hand under it and do a really spectacular move. You can do this lateral drop where they fly through there and end up on their back, and you're on top of them. So that's what happened. He flew through there and ended up on his back. And, uh, of course, the crowd went wild. Our side, our side of the gym was going, pin him, pin him, and the other side of the gym is doing this other stuff. And I'm thinking... Because I had taken him down to get two points. He was on his back. I knew I'd at least get three points. I knew at least I had a five-point lead. He was much bigger muscles than me. So I just think I'm just going to rest and let him work hard down there. Because I got a five-point lead. So I'm holding him like that. And he's busy trying to get off his back. And then suddenly I feel this piercing pain right here. I think, God, what's this guy's biting me? <laughs> so, so I say, I'm mad now. So I get this, this half Nelson on tighter, really... Really, because the pain's getting a bit rough. Really do the thing. And I get his shoulders down for one second. So the referee slaps the mat. Mat's over. I've, I've pinned him, which is a big win. Our team gets five points for that. And I jump up. But the first thing I do, I jump up. I pull my uniform aside. And there his teeth marks are with, <laughs> with, with blood coming out. Bit of blood coming out. And I think, what'd you bite me for? And then he starts to want to fight like that. And then... Of course, uh, there almost was a race riot because then the the uh, a black wave was coming off the other side of the stands, and then my coach, Major Worsham, who's over six feet tall, tall, and he's a giant, and he comes out there, and he puts his hand on my head, and he booms out. If anyone touches this boy, I'm going to start swinging. So the wave comes, <laughs> comes back a bit, and you know, so there. So there is major tension in the gym. And uh, so you know, the referee tries to calm things down, everybody. And they, they take me in the back and kind of clean me up and everything like that. And, and then the matches are supposed to go on. But there's a... Uh, oh, another thing is on the, on the mat outside, you know, when, the, when uh, Jerome White said to me, let's fight outside. And, and I'm thinking, oh, God. <laughs> 
I don't mind fighting on the mat, but I don't like getting killed outside, you know. So anyway, I go back and they take me in the back and try to clean up my cut and everything like that. And then the matches are going on. And I asked my coach, I said, Coach, please let me go over and talk to the guy. And I don't like having enemies. I mean, and my choice, no way, you told me this is going to be a riot or something like that. And, and anyway, I kept asking and he said, uh, all right, you can go. So you got to remember this gym is there's one side that is them and there's another side that is us and the place is kind of packed and, and, and the next matches are still kind of going on. So when I kind of walked out and then went on their side, it's kind of a tense feeling. But then um, it was a good deed, so I must have been uh, moved by something. I don't know what it was. Maybe just uh, not wanting to be killed. <laughs> uh, so I, I went over there in front of all their stands, got, got to him and said, uh, uh, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said, uh, I said, I got a lucky move on you. And, and I said, uh, and he said, uh, he got really mad. I said, I don't like to be pinned or something. I said, well, I don't like to be bitten. And, and I said, well, would you like to see what, how I was lucky? Because did you, did you know what you did wrong? You went in with your elbow out. And so anyway, I showed him the move and we sort of, uh, got to a kind of cordial relationship. And I went back to my side. You know, you don't think much about that. You know, I thought, well, it was a nice deed. And there was some self-interest involved because I didn't want to be killed. But there was also, I just don't like having enemies. And I did want to, our coach, who's a real saint, always made us, taught us to teach the other team everything that we did. So, and I said, but they'll beat us next time. And he said, no, you'll have to get better. So he always wanted us to share everything. And anyway, so there was a deed, and you think, oh, so what? But years later, you know, that thing surfaced. And uh, when I was, uh, so years later, a senior at Princeton, and I got nominated for this kind of road scholarship to come to England. And somebody in one of these recommendations had, had seen that incident that had made an effect on them, so they had written that off, sent it off to the committee or whatever like that was. And that became an important thing that helped me be allowed to win the scholarship to come to England. And by coming to England then, I heard about, uh, was able to suffer enough, to also hear, <laughs> encounter Buddhist teachings, be interested in them, hear about Ajahn Shah in Thailand. Then I went to Thailand, and our monasteries moved to England, was able to encounter the wonderful teachings. And guess who else I was able to encounter? <laughs> Tanisra. So, uh, I can thank Jerome White <laughs> for that. And, uh, I mean, I don't think we should ever underestimate the littlest thing that we can do and what implications that it can have, uh, a kind gesture. Or the smallest thing that really, if our gut tells us it's not right, you know, the smallest thing to, to really learn to make that gesture of renunciation and say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't feel good about that. To learn to not underestimate that either and the incredible changes that that can make, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. 
Anyway, I do hope there is something, and I trust that we all can carry with us from this uh, time together and, uh, and, and spread forth uh, for the welfare of all beings. May, may we be blessed and guided by the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, and all the saints and sages. May these refuges really take root in our hearts. May we learn to, like my friend the donkey, may we learn to really listen inwardly and contact what we are so that we can play this instrument that we've been given as beautifully as we can. And knowing that we have a, we have this gift and it is, it's perfect for, for making our unique offering to this uh, world that we live in. <laughs>